0: Vote yes for unions, quid pro quo MG, and Donald Trump thinks he's being lynched. Seriously, what a week. I'm Matt Sinovic, the executive director of Progress Iowa.
1: And I'm Lauren McElmere, the digital director for Progress Iowa.
0: This is What a Week, where we break down the week's top stories. And this, the first story this week isn't uh, necessarily from this week, it's, it's, been the last several weeks and for the next week or so but uh public sector unions are facing recertification elections and it is incredibly important if you can vote in the recertification elections it's it's incredibly important that you do vote yes if you can't vote in these elections it's really important that you spread the word and and encourage people to vote because we all know someone who who works for the city county state And and we're going to break down some of the history of how we got to this point and also why it's so important that that these unions uh, remain strong. So, I mean, Lauren, we we talk about we've talked about this a little bit before and we've talked about Labor Union Appreciation Month uh, during the month of September. But um, but. You worked in the legislature and you were on the floor when when, or when a lot of these votes happened over the last few you know, a few years ago. But maybe if you'd just kind of break down how we got to this point where public sector unions are been so under attack.
1: In twenty seventeen there was a bill that came forward. Basically it gutted a lot of these protections that public workers had been relying on for a very long time since the beginning of Chapter 20 in Chuck Grassley's time in the legislature. He voted. I think he voted for it. We should check that.
0: I'm pretty sure he voted for it.
1: Um, Well, it was in the wake of a bunch of strikes that had been happening. And as a kind of negotiation to get that to stop, workers were guaranteed a seat at the table to be able to bargain about several... Things beyond just wages and benefits, like safe work environments, um, lessening of occupational hazards, all sorts of things that uh, that a lot of us took for granted in the the years before. And so this bill basically took all of that away and said that certain certain non-public safety workers had only status to. Bargain for wages and certain benefits and nothing else so no teachers can go in and say that they're concerned that their work environment is unsafe and they don't they don't have any didn't really don't have a leg to stand on but one of the things that this bill did do was They created these elections where public workers have to vote to maintain their union and collective bargaining contract before the expiration of the contract. And basically, recertification elections are simply meant to bust unions because they're incredibly hard to organize. And the way that they're set up is that if a worker decides not to participate in the election, they're automatically considered a no vote. And I remember... A while back, Bleeding Heartland did a did an analysis where they looked up if the people that put forward this bill could survive an election like the ones that they're having unions go through, and most of them would not be in office if we applied the same rules yeah, to I mean, their own elections.
0: Almost no one would, because if someone doesn't participate in the process and doesn't vote at all, that if that's considered a no vote, then pretty much everybody would lose their elections if that was the case.
1: Yeah, and so if a majority of the workers covered by these contracts don't vote yes, and that inc- so that really requires a big turnout of people who are going to vote and make sure that they're covered. If they don't vote yes in these elections, their contract becomes null and void 10 days after the election is certified, and that could that might not be the will of the People that are in that union, there are a lot of other things that can go wrong with this. And then if the bargaining unit loses the election, the workers are banned for two years from unionizing. And the law forces the unions to pay for the entire cost of the elections, but they get no say in the, how they're administered.
0: Yeah. And and it is um, it really is set up to that's just another example of how it's set up to um, to cut down on union support and union uh, on their ability to organize in the state, which is the whole point of the law. I mean, uh, or the whole point of what they were trying to do when they when they passed this law um, that you you can vote, uh, you can vote online. Uh, the elections run through Tuesday, October 29th at 9 a.m., um, and and there are about three hundred different uh, units uh, up for uh, up for recertification. So we will definitely post the link to uh, to, to show wh- where where these uh, bargaining units are and and hopefully help help people figure out if, if they can vote. But no matter what, um, please be sure to share IA PERB vote dot com i a p e r b vote dot com and and that way if people are eligible to vote they'll they'll get a reminder to do that Um, we're going to be promoting that on progress iowa and potluck's uh, social media over the weekend and through through the end of voting uh next tuesday at 9 a.m so so please promote that but um but in addition to that i mean we should talk about how it's important for Non union members, or why it's you know, why union membership is or why strong unions are so important for every single Iowan.
1: Unions are really important with bringing equality to the fore. A lot of race and gender wage gaps are a lot smaller among union members and people that work in unionized workplaces, and unions help drive up wages again, even among people who are not in unions. And there's been several studies that. As union membership declines, inequality across our society rises. And, I mean, these all seem like very good things. I mean, I think we're all in favor of higher wages, lower inequality, closing racial and gender gaps... Yeah. So so I guess what's what's the problem then that people are so concerned about I, unions I, that they're gutting collective bargaining <laughs> rights? Um
0: I don't know. Um but it's so true and and if you think about like where our state is at right now with pretty low unemployment rate, now that's it's easy to think that that means everything's okay, that doesn't mean that's not the case. I mean, we still need we still have relatively low wage growth and everything like that. And also generally
1: that unemployment rate includes people who are working two to jobs, three jobs. Absolutely,
0: yeah. Um, but, but if if the unemployment rate is relatively low, what you what we need to have happen is some force pulling where wages can in, where there is increased competition for workers and wages are going up, and unions provide to help with that. If unions are negotiating more of their health care benefits being paid for, or better retirement, or better sick days, paid leave, all that stuff. All that gets factored in as people are deciding where to work. And so in a low unemployment you know, environment, that can help you know, if people need to move jobs. Um, so, so all of this will help uh, or a stronger stronger union uh, membership and stronger uh, union representation will help everybody, just as you're saying. But, but it's, on all, I think, on everything um, and, and for non, non-union members, too.
1: So that said we really want to encourage anyone who is a public worker whose union is up for recertification to go and vote. Voting online is the easiest and likely quickest way to vote and that that website again is iaperbvote.com and there are around 20,000 public employees who are up for recertification this this year and that includes a lot of city, county, and school employees. So, I mean, we want all those teachers, nurses, janitors, and all those public workers to have good lives. And it really helps if you are a non-public worker to share a tweet, a Facebook post saying how important it is for these recertification elections because again, these this the deck is kind of stacked against these elections and it's really important to make sure that they can, they get to, they get to win.
0: Another unfortunate, um, there. I think with President Trump, there's a lot of news stories that could be caricatured as unfortunate um, and just really disgusting uh, use of language. This week, uh, the president tweeted out and compared the impeachment investigation um, to a lynching, and um, obviously that's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, As I said, disgusting and not the same. Um, But I do want to. We did want to discuss this um, because for a number of reasons. But uh, our national organization, Progress Now, held held our uh, national conference last year in Montgomery, and we don't have an affiliate in Alabama. But one of the reasons that um, that we decided to do that as a network was as an organization was because of the civil rights history there. And Lauren, you went to the um, to the Legacy Museum, the National Monument for Peace and Justice. There, when we were there, and so just wanted to ask about your experience with that and uh, visiting that, and and also your reaction to what the president tweeted this week.
1: I mean, my reaction is generally that this is outrageous, and every again, I said this last week. Every time we think that we've hit rock bottom, there's a new sub basement, and we're. We've got to be getting close, you know, to like the core of it. We're where we're all just gonna start on fire. You'd hope. And, but so last year when I went to the the Legacy Museum and the National Monument for Peace and Justice, um, which are with the memorial is number one, just beautiful. But the way that they have you do it is you start at the museum and they shuttle you to the monument so that you learn all of the context behind it, and then you go and kind of sit with and reflect on what you're seeing and so the the museum which number one is a fantastic amazing museum and i mean as someone who loves museums I, and is very critical about museums <laughs> i think it is a very good one but they take you in and talk about a lot of how slavery wasn't ended. It just evolved. So it went from uh, enslaved labor, forced labor camps, basically, to lynching Jim Crow laws to now mass incarceration. And to be able to see the through thread there is really important to understanding kind of our country's very poor history of of racial uh, equality and so going through that and the museum has also collected dirt from every they've from every place that there was a recorded lynching and it's set up in this really beautiful and haunting just wall of jars of dirt that have the names and the locations and it's also a crowdsourced thing so people are will just like go get out of their cars, grab some dirt from this place, take it back and donate it to the museum. And it's one of the most incredible things to see. And it really I really gets at the heart of what this this really is about, which is that like there are so many instances and then to go from that and then get in a shuttle and go to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice and see just the sheer amount of names and dates and places that are all around. And you basically just, you walk through the history of it. And I don't know how anyone can think that being held accountable for your own actions and your basically high crimes and misdemeanors, is the same as a coordinated campaign of racial terrorism that existed basically from the end of the Civil War throughout Reconstruction. And in a sense, kind of content, there are echoes of that today in police brutality and things like that. And so it speaks to a real lack of understanding or a lack of i I mean i don't think donald trump cares about no right anyone who is not donald trump but i think that it's since he is saying since he is conflating it with being being held accountable for his own misdeeds that's going to conflate it for a lot of people, and it's go- you're going to lose all of this history that is already just clawing to get to the front page of... The-, the 1619 Project was the first of its kind, and it was 400 years after the first enslaved person arrived on American soil, and it took that long for so much of this history to be made public, and it's, and it's such... It's such a sad and kind of demoralizing thing. And I mean, I'm, I'm a white person. We're all white in this room and I can't even imagine the, just the sorrow and, and anger that people, that people of color and especially black people are feeling because of this, that these comments.
0: Yeah. I think you hit the nail on that. You just hit it right on the head that, that I don't think he cares. I mean, I don't think the president cares. I think, um,
1: but then the and, problem is that he's setting a precedent for not caring, and that's where it gets really dangerous.
0: Absolutely, and I'm we discussed even whether to bring this up on this episode. I'm glad we did. Um, we'll share the link for the museum um, on the uh, online as part of this. I hope people go and at least check it out um, and and learn more about this because I think with every horrendous, awful, disgusting terrible thing that the president does. It's also an opportunity to learn more about what the actual truth is and history is behind. And um, show
1: the work of good people who are doing this work and ensuring that this history doesn't get lost or turned into a punchline by Donald Trump.
0: Okay, we're joined now by Jeremy Vinook a research analyst with the Moscow Project at the Center for American Progress. He, 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 has also spent time working at the Atlantic um, where he where he wrote a lot about the president's conflicts of interest um, and so we're we're really thrilled to have uh, have have Jeremy on today uh, welcome to what a week Jeremy
2: Thank you and thanks for having me
0: yeah of course um, so we've we've talked on this show a lot about uh, impeachment as it has come up in the news and and it feels honestly like every, weeks worth of stories could would normally fit in a year um and it just but this week in particular there has been there have been so much there's been so much going on Uh, i want to start with um with former ambassador bill taylor's testimony um but uh i want to get to bill taylor's testimony but i kind of want to get your assessment because you've been covering this for for a while now and we've actually used a lot of the research at the, from the Moscow project uh, when we've talked about the Mueller report and that investigation. But um, anyway, you've, you've been doing this for a while. I want to kind of want to get your sense of where are we in this um, in this impeachment inquiry and this investigation into, into President Trump's administration.
2: Yeah, the thing about this whole Ukraine scandal is really how quickly it's been moving and how simple the story at the heart of the matter is. I mean, we're basically seeing every single day whether in testimony or with the indictment of two of Rudy Giuliani's associates with just news reports coming out of the Washington Post or the New York Times that it's a very simple story. Trump wanted the Ukrainian government to give him dirt on his political opponents and he was willing to basically extort them into doing it. He was willing to withhold military aid. He was willing to withhold a face-to-face meeting with Zelensky. And everything we've seen has only proven just how explicit the Trump administration was in their desire to get this dirt and in their willingness to withhold vital military assistance in order to get it.
0: And that's the, the simplicity of this, I think, shouldn't be lost on people because... We've had this discussion here, and and as I've talked to reporters or other people about impeachment over the last you know six months or so since the Mueller report came out, uh, and and then the the attempts at getting the underlying information and all of that. I mean, my answer, my my description of this, and it's it's I think it's always unfortunate to think about it in this way, but it's re- I think it's the reality is that impeachment is a political question because. If there's not support for it, then members of Congress, members of the Senate are likely not going to push for it, um, which isn't how it probably ought to work. And I think in a, in a typical like criminal investigation type of of, situ- of situation, but that's what it is because it has to be decided by politicians. They are the jury. So I wonder, do you think that the simplicity of it is is why then it's moving so quickly um, or what's your I mean, as compared to the myriad of potential uh, impeachable offenses that were identified in the Mueller report.
2: Yeah, I do think that the simplicity plays a really important role in why this has caught on so quickly. I mean, you look at the polling, you look at Trump's approval rating, it's down according to 538 and places like that by point and a half, two points in just a month. You look at the impeachment polling and people are now supporting a majority of people are supportive of an impeachment investigation. That's something that you never saw with President Clinton. It's something that you only saw really at the very end, right before Richard Nixon resigned. Some polls are even showing a majority of voters who believe that Trump should be not just impeached, but then removed from office. Yeah, I've And seen... the fact that oh, Sorry. you can lay out the accusations so clearly. But on top of that, the fact that uh, Trump's Republican accomplices, as we like to call them, uh, seem to have been caught totally flat-footed. They have no idea what their counter-messaging is because it's so simple. There's really nothing that you can say to dispute when you have the president on the phone telling the president of Ukraine, I would like you to do me a favor, though.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they've kind of shifted from uh, earlier this year, it was no collusion to which this is, I mean, this is, I don't know if you'd want to describe it that way, like legally or or, or what, but they, they, the president, even before the summary transcript, or however they're describing the transcript, or the, the memo that was released by the White House, came out, you know, he, he admitted it. He said that, yeah, that's what we did. And then uh, Mulvaney has admitted it, now backtracked. I mean, so no one's saying no collusion now. Um, they they were saying no pr- quid pro quo, and then and that I think uh, uh, was blown up um, was blown up by well by that summary. Uh, wh- I mean, if you're not if you're asking for a favor, I don't know what else that could be other than a quid pro quo. But but it was certainly blown up by uh, former ambassador Taylor's testimony this week. So um, for those that didn't. Uh, didn't read his his introductory statement or read about, read the coverage of this, would you just kind of summarize what he re, at least reportedly uh, said in, in testimony this week?
2: There are two main important takeaways from former ambassador to Ukraine, uh, Bill Taylor's testimony earlier this week. The first one is he documents how intent Trump and his closest people, Gordon Sondland, Kurt Volker, were about setting up this back channel to Ukraine, which is something that I think is really striking and really surprising to see. You know, he's president of the United States. If he thought that these allegations that he wanted investigated were so pressing, why didn't he do it through normal diplomatic channels? Instead, they come up with this bizarre workaround. They brought in Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. They brought Rick Perry, energy secretary, into these conversations. And at one point, Bill Taylor said that it was pretty clear why they were doing this, that he was all but explicitly told that the reason was they didn't want to have people from the normal national security apparatus listening in. They wanted to make sure that they could have these conversations without anybody else in the government who wasn't in on this whole scheme, part of them. The second thing from his testimony is just how explicitly understood it was within the Trump administration that they were effectively extorting Ukraine. He cites Gordon Sondland as basically saying that he had messed up in one of his earlier conversations with Ukraine because he had only told them that a face-to-face meeting was on the line. When what he really should have said is, if they wanted a face-to-face meeting or military assistance, that everything was dependent on them opening investigations on Trump's behalf. So, and he, so he was are, trying to these, correct
0: him to make sure that that the full amount of extortion was was very clear.
2: Yes, and these are the people who are, these are Trump's people. Gordon Sondland isn't some you know lifetime civil servant, somebody who might. You know, whose hackles might be raised by the way Trump does business in general. In fact, one of the things that Taylor says that Sondland told him was, oh, this is totally reasonable for Trump to be doing. He's a businessman just like I am. And a businessman expects, you know, to see the money before he delivers the goods or to, you know, see the goods before he delivers the money, which is, of course, ironic given how many contractors Trump has stiffed over <laughs> his lifetime. But Sondland isn't somebody who is, you know, out to get Trump. He's a person who Trump himself put into this role, who has a similar backstory to Trump. And he is the one who is explicitly laying out this quid pro quo to Bill Taylor, who is one of those lifetime career diplomats.
0: So at this point, what, I mean, what do, what's the defense of this? I mean, I've noticed that, like, most everyone has, that Rudy Giuliani has... You know, has typically been the easiest person to book on cable news um, and has gone has has gone si- radio silent though. Um, and Republicans are kind of scrambling and squirming to find a line of defense. So if you were on if you were defending the president, how would you be able to do it? How could you what what would you do to contort yourself into that and into that defense?
2: The Republican defense seems to be to uh, throw a smoke bomb and leave the room. Um, they've run out of arguments on the merits because the facts are pretty clearly entirely against them. And instead, they are engaging in increasingly baffling, uh, wild stunts to try to draw attention to what they claim are process problems with this impeachment.
0: Like storming of course, into the secure yeah yeah, uh, storming into the 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 skiff into the the secure
2: room and the thing that i thought was so absurd about that is first off there is a long history of people who are not on a committee who are investigating something not being allowed to come into the closed door depositions i mean there are stories, you can go back and look at them during the Benghazi investigation of Trey Gowdy kicking out Republican members of Congress from the deposition rooms while they were mm-hmm. investigating Benghazi. But beyond that, of those 40-ish, 40-something Republicans who stormed the skiff, 13 of them could have gone in if they had wanted to. So it's clear that They don't want to be in those hearing rooms. They don't actually have any interest in these hearings being transparent in these hearings being out in the open and finding out what these witnesses have to say. They're only interested in trying to stop the hearings by any means necessary, even if that means bringing a phone into a secure room, breaking the rules, recording what's going on in there, and sending it out literally on Twitter.
0: Yeah, no, it was it was definitely a stunt. I mean, there was no I don't think there was any merit behind it, but that that is a good point that that's where they're at in this defense of 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 the administration. Um unfortunately to some extent I think it it, it worked at least a little bit. You had at least in in Des Moines you had the the front page of the Des Moines Register throwing the USA Today story about them Trying to get into the closed door hearings, and that was the context that was put around it. But that's the media's response to it is a is a topic for another for another uh, another mm-hmm. time. Um, but I I do wonder um, how much of this like uh, how much of these how much can these stunts prevent the prevent this from moving forward? Um, but but I'm more interested from you in in what are the things that we should be looking for? Because there's, there is a lot of this noise out there. There's these stunts that they're going to probably continue to try and pull. There is, I mean, there are, there have been incendiary headlines, m- many of them, you know, accurate since the president took office. Um, but I want you to help us pull out the substantive points that we should be looking for in the next few weeks, months, as this moves forward, so um, what should we be looking for um, as as really the as really potential highlights for for this for this uh, as impeachment unfolds?
2: I think that the first thing to look for as this continues to unfold is to try to keep an eye out for just how much of Trump's administration seems to have been involved in this endeavor. Um, We've already seen Rudy Giuliani. I mentioned Secretary of Energy Rick Perry, Kurt Volker, Gordon Sondland. There's starting to be indications that, for example, John Bolton, who was National Security Advisor, told the U.S. trade representative not to uh, upgrade Ukraine's trade status. So in that conversation, did it come up why Trump was so against upgrading Ukraine's trade status? you know, does the U.S. trade representative or his office know about what Trump was trying to do with Ukraine? What does Attorney General Bill Barr know? You know, he has been off on his tangential but certainly related crusade to find information to uh, delegitimize the Mueller investigation. It sounds like he's mostly coming up empty but is still going to open some kind of criminal investigation that you know, Trump certainly going to claim, shows that he was being framed by the quote-unquote deep state. So that, to me, is the big question as the testimony continues to move forward, as we hear more out of these closed depositions, is just how deep did this go?
0: And is that to uh, to, to see how close it gets to the Oval Office, to President Trump, to Vice President Pence? Is that the, the thought there? I mean, I know that that was stories you read about watergate and that scandal like um what did the president know when did he know it that type of thing like is that the but in this case you have the president who was literally on the phone making the ask for the favor so what's the just you just want to see how far this goes in the administration or is that
2: i mean we know for sure that by you know july 25th trump certainly knew what was going on enough to talk about it with zelensky But to me, the question that it raises is not so much what did he know and when did he know it as just how much was he willing to do. How many different people was he willing to deputize in this? How many of his powers was he willing to invoke for what now is starting to look like a completely backfired uh, adventure to manufacture dirt on a political opponent by abusing the powers of the presidency?
0: Well, it appears as you've been rattling off these cabinet officials and others that it does go pretty deep. Um, what the what is next as far as the the impeachment inquiry goes? I mean, you've seen some. This is the 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 storming of the skiff or whatever whatever we're gonna call that this week. Um, uh, kind of helped, I think. Hopefully, educate some people about where where we're at logistically in this process, because this is the inquiry phase. the The actual hearings would be public and in front of potentially the judiciary committee. I think is that like what's is that the order of operation here um, as we move ahead in the house?
2: That is kind of an open question, as far as I understand okay. it. Um, part of that is, I think, going to vary based on what witnesses are coming forward, what witnesses are bucking the White House's efforts to keep them from testifying and what they reveal. You know, from the very beginning, there have been little hints that this controversy involves more than just Ukraine. You know, there's been Trump on the White House lawn. (laughs) This was a little bit more than a hint saying that he also wanted China to investigate the Bidens. There's also... Indications that this secret server—there are two words I never thought I would want to hear um, again—also had some kind of notes on his conversations with Putin, with the Saudi crown prince, with the president of China.
0: And those could be about who knows what, right? That we don't like—not necessarily related to this particular incident, Mm -hmm. but but it could be about anything.
2: And the New York Times had an article suggesting. Or um, Washington Post, I believe, was the one that got this particular scoop, that one of those conversations with Putin may in fact have informed the Ukraine scandal, that Putin and one of his pals over there in Europe, uh, Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, um, was partially behind Trump's turn on Ukraine. And even if they may not have specifically fed him the allegations against Biden or the idea of withholding military assistance, that they were the ones who were convincing him that corruption in Ukraine and maybe something to do with the Democrats was something that he should really go all in on investigating and pushing them on.
0: Well, I mean, it is just a and I think all of what you've just laid out in the last 10 minutes kind of underlines I think the point uh, or the importance of having it be such a simple uh, a simple case to be made for for impeachment because with so many countries with so many players it just gets overwhelming for folks and and so I don't know what the we'll see what the next steps are but mm-hmm. uh, but I hope that it continues to be a very straightforward case because be, because it just is, And and when you get back, when you get down to it, the I mean, it it is, I think, a political question of will there be will there be enough support? And uh, you mentioned the five thirty eight polling on this. They put up that there's a new they have that tracker, not just of the president's approval rating, but of the of the impeachment of the support for Mm -hmm. impeachment. And what I think is particularly interesting is the. Is the level of Republican support ticking up? And I think that is going to be because there's 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 not enough senators from purple and blue states to to get the job done here. And and you'll need we'll need to see that Republican support tick up. And it has been, but it will need to continue. Um, Mm -hmm. So
2: that's and that's something where, you know, I don't I don't know how much hope I'm holding out that any of them will actually turn on Trump, but. We saw yesterday that Lindsey Graham introduced his measure to um, censure Schiff over mm-hmm. the impeachment investigations. And there were a number of Republicans who appear to have not been comfortable signing on to that. Um, some of them being people who are leaving. Uh, I believe Johnny Isaacson was one of the senators who didn't sign on to it. Right. But you also had several who are up for reelection In 2020, or even up for reelection in 2022, who didn't appear to be comfortable putting their name on a resolution attacking the impeachment investigation just yet.
0: And that's a step in the right direction. I mean, that's a Mm -hmm. um, it's a baby step in the right direction, at least. well i can't thank you enough for joining us today and helping us um kind of pull apart some of this information pull apart some of this information and break it down for folks um we will make sure and uh list the moscow project on or, or link to the moscow project on uh on the on online when when this website or when the uh when the episode goes live um and and uh, and, and would love to have you back on as the story develops if, if that's all right
2: Yeah, thank you, and thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Jeremy.
1: What a Week is produced by Progress Iowa as part of the Potluck Media Network and would not be possible without grassroots supporters like you. For more information, visit potluck.fm or find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave us a five-star review and subscribe. See you next week on What a Week.